All right. Um, <clears throat> welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of I Don't Know What I Want to Call My Podcast. Uh, <laughs> I am talking with my very good friend Beth Myers today, who is in Nebraska, and it is 11 o'clock or something where you're at, and she's going to, what was that? 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock. Um, yeah, Beth is a wonderful person. She's a teacher. She's an artist. She skates. She's incredibly funny and caring, and in terms of what you'd want out of a friend, she's about the whole deal. So I'm very lucky to have her as the first guest, and uh, I'm excited to talk really today and just kind of what, what Beth and I had lined out about, um, about art and the value of art and what people take away from art um, and a whole bunch of other things. So I will, I'll send it off to you, Beth. Do you have, uh, well, how was your day? Did you teach today? <laughs> no, it's Saturday. So oh, I didn't shit. teach today. <laughs> Dude, I'm um, a, But today, driver. this week was my first, um, full week of being full-time sub and I'm working in the resource room. So I'm working with SPED students, students that have behavior issues or just students that need an extra push to learn how to read or write. And um, it's been, it's such a good experience. Um, it's something that I can add to my resume. And then I'm also taking an art class, which is really cool that we get to do this podcast while I'm I'm taking an intro to exceptional learning class too so about SPED students and so it's pretty interesting how things are lining up right now for me yeah. and what's your um what's your art class on is it specific is it it's called the elements of art so I believe if I can remember correctly the outline of the art class is basically exactly what we're talking about today like what is the value of art and who even values it, the history of art, um, where it even started, different art movements that brought us to where we are today, and like what academia art is and how that has slowly been broken down into art pieces that we see today where it's just a solid color and yeah. then it sells for like millions of dollars and that, chloe's chloe's in an art history class right now and um she had to watch this documentary on the commercialization like the commercial art industry and it was i just kind of like poked my head in for a second and there was this dude named jeff coons you ever heard of him mm, sounds familiar i can't he's, remember he's a sculptor and he's like He's been around since the late 70s, early 80s, and he's sort of in the, he's kind of an artist in the same vein from what I took of it as like, sort of like pop art, kind of like cultural, uh, cultural critic, cultural criticism almost in a way, like his, his pieces, he, he'll do, he did like a piece, uh, like a robot bunny that some, and that like, and he was like a big art installation. Yes, I and, know exactly who you're talking about now. Okay. And, but I was so surprised because his, um, his pieces sell for three, four, five, six million dollars. And I was just really curious about why you think someone, um, <laughs> someone is able to make that, what is it about a, a piece of art that is able to communicate a value like that, you know? Do you have any 
kind of immediate thoughts? Like a monetary value. Um, It's, it's hard to tell because art is like totally based off of your own interpretation. And because as, as an artist myself, like some things that I think is worth absolutely nothing. Someone is like, I'll pay you 50 bucks for it. Like, do you remember that one art show that I had at your house? And there was a print that I did and it's just something that I made in like one class period. And someone offered me like $500 for it. And I was like, I I thought I I was like worth a hundred bucks. So like it totally, it like totally depends on um, how people interpret it. And like art's just subjective. It, in what people put into the value of art totally depends on like the era that it came from Mm -hmm. and like if you're a specific artist and like in UC Davis they have um at the at the art program there they have a big event every year where a bunch of ceramic artists come in and all the students at Davis too they just shut down Mm -hmm. all of downtown UC Davis or all of Davis and they um, just display ceramics everywhere. You can just go into a restaurant and there'll be like four ceramic pieces on a pedestal and it could be a college student or a really famous artist. And there is this one artist that she, her style is very, very similar. Like every piece that she does has the same face image. And I can't remember her name right now, but her pieces sell for like twenty thousand is fifty thousand dollars and it was being sold in like uc davis so yeah. when you could look at like a student ceramic piece and it look like a similar style and it would be worth nothing you know so it's I, just interesting but yeah i actually have some i actually have some pictures saved on here of the mm-hmm. highest some of the um most expensive pieces that i've ever that have ever been sold so this one right here, make it big. Is that um, Cy Twombly? Let's double check here. Um, this people is. People who are listening, it is a canvas that, I mean, it, it's, it's chaotic in a cool sort of way. It's not something I'd put in my house, but it's a, it's, uh, it's a canvas, a white canvas splattered with various, just, just splattered with color, mostly. I mean, the sort of color that sticks out is the yellow and the red. Um, yeah. But that's pretty much all it is. But I mean, I'm sure the texture is, it looks like a very textural painting just from what you're Yeah, doing. it definitely wouldn't, since it, it, you're right, it is all just paint splatter. It wouldn't just have like a flat dimension feel to it. It would have texture. But even still, like this is, any. I feel like anyone could do this at home, but this, this, um, this artist is actually really famous. His name is Jackson Pollux and all oh, of his, yeah, I've heard that name. All of his art looks like this for the most part. And it's a type of uh, abstract art called abstract expressionist. And this piece is titled number five, 1943. So all of his pieces are just titled by numbers. And um, this piece specifically was sold for $140 million. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay, and then I have another one here. To someone who's probably trying to hide, uh, hide some uh, <laughs> <laughs> funds that they don't want. Uh, <laughs> well, this is so 
I'm showing you these pieces specifically, and we'll talk about them too, so people who are just listening can yeah. kind of conceptualize what we're talking about. But Absolutely. these pieces, like, and anyone that's listening to you guys can Google like top ten most expensive piece art pieces ever sold, and these are all art pieces that are sold at like giant auctions and are just really just passed between like billionaires and people who could actually afford to drop 140 million dollars on a paint splatter canvas which do you think it has some do you think it has real quick before we go to that next painting um how much do you think for example when when someone when an artist becomes renowned having a piece of their work essentially is a sign of status how much do you think a millionaire, or I, I guess I should say billionaire in these cases, since mm -hmm. I mean, well, that last painting was so expensive, but I guess the line between art as a status symbol versus art as something that communicates, I guess, can it, can it do both? Can it communicate this deeper meaning that maybe the artist was looking for the piece to communicate while also being a uh, <laughs> more, more money than like anyone could ever fathom in their entire dreams you know um honestly i don't think it has anything to do with the art piece in these specific cases um yeah. like i'll show you this one right now this piece is by mark ruthko and he's the same as jackson pollock where all of his pieces are abstract and they're all titled by number too like this one is um Oh, what is it? It's titled like, I think it's also titled number five. Mm -hmm. No, actually this one has a real name. Just kidding. It's white center, yellow, pink, plus lavender on rose. So that's what this one is titled. And this is a picture of it actually being sold at the auction that it's at. But this one is nicknamed the Rockefeller Rothko because this one was, this sold for $73 million in uh, 2000. 2007, I believe. Yeah, 2007. $73 million. Collapse. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway. And so I actually watched a documentary about um, what we're talking about right now. And right before the financial collapse, there was a lot of art being passed Do you around. I don't remember what the documentary is called. I can, I can send it to you later. Maybe you can okay. put it in notes or something. Yeah. But it's nicknamed the Rockefeller Rothko because this piece was sold at a value like eight times higher than they were expecting purely on the fact that rock the rockefellers owned it before it was put into auction and that is the main reason why this piece was sold and was auctioned so high was because rockefellers owned it and that's pure yeah. it's not because of rothko even though he's a famous artist it's purely because someone with a well-known name owned it before them and there's this other going along that too there's this other piece that pablo picasso did and i don't have a picture of it or no remember what it's called but um the this piece was in like there's a casino in las vegas that i think is called picasso i think it's it's basically Picasso themed. Like you can go and have dinner there like and you're going to have a trip. Pablo Picasso. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's do shrooms and go to the Picasso museum. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Las, Las Vegas um, is a 
kind of a shithole in my eyes. <laughs> I would never want to do shrooms in Las Vegas. No. Um, I would be way over stimulated. But anyways, this I'll tell piece my Las Vegas story at a different time. <laughs> this piece uh, by Pablo Picasso was sold for the millions to it's on the top 10 most sold paintings. And right, I can't remember if it was before or after it was sold, but the guy who owned it just punched a hole through it. <laughs> Probably what I would do if I had that money. Just videotape it. As it kind of reminds me of the, um, the Banks Banksy. Yeah, the Banksy piece. Where, yeah, where he. Well, you, could uh, say that, you could say that that, that what he did, so um you have to you should probably jog my memory on this so Banksy street artist from England very well known known for these kind of cultural critiques and sort of political statement and you know fusion with street art and that kind of thing but the specific thing we're talking about he had um I can't remember I think it was one of his paintings that was uh was it going to be sold at Christie's or one of the auction houses I don't remember, but, and I don't remember exactly where it was going to be sold, but um, he made the piece like 15 years before it was even put in the auction. I don't know if it was 15 years, but it was definitely a good chunk of time before he knew it was going to be put into auction and he right. built a shredder into the frame and watched where this piece went. So when it was sold, he would just shred it instantly, which is like the biggest, like, screw you guys and all of your you, money. But at the same time, they're going to, the, yeah. What, what were you saying? I was just saying it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Sorry. I guess it, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And I guess it kind of makes sense as like a way, I mean, it's definitely a statement. It's going to, I think it's kind of sad because probably what's going to happen are people are go people are going to feel that what he did was part of the art itself and they're still someone will buy the the blank case that the paper was shredded into or something like that and totally. still frame it and still buy it for uh 70 million or whatever and yeah. it's funny too because he's such a non-political or he's he's kind of a, like a very left-wing kind of anarchist type of personality is is just kind of conveyed by his art so it's interesting that the fact that it was even at an auction house and I mean it's the whole story is fascinating yeah. and good for him yeah Banksy's a, a cool dude um but so this this piece this is a pop art piece yeah um by Roy Litcherson and he's pretty famous for doing like cartoon styles like this like he I was like this. In the same area. Yeah. yeah, he's great. I really enjoy his stuff. The painting says so the painting is primary colors, so yellow, red, blue, um, with black and white. And it's just a woman looking at a man and they're looking at a painting together. And the woman says, Why, Brad, darling, this painting is a masterpiece. My my, soon you'll have all of New York glamoring for your work, right? Yeah. So this piece sold. For 165 million dollars i don't remember who to or when it was but it's it's just Damn. so this is the second most expensive piece ever sold the first most expensive piece ever sold was by leonardo da vinci and people don't give leonardo da vinci enough credit he did the mona lisa obviously mona lisa is the most boring painting in the world i'll talk about that later but um <laughs> 
he oh. has the most expensive painting ever sold. So this one right here is just abstract impressionism, just the giant blotches of color. The colors are orange, yellow, blue, some teal green on a white canvas. It's an it's oil strange, painting. It's, it's like strangely comforting for what it's worth. Yeah. And I don't know shit about painting or fine art. I mean, I go to the museum and I enjoy, like, oh, I enjoy that painting. I enjoy this painting. This painting I don't enjoy as much. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I like Well, I mean, that's really what it's all about <laughs> anyway, is any sort of art that ignites some sort of feeling within, then you've created a masterpiece at that point, you know? Yeah. Like, you, if you start, if you make your audience move with feeling, then it's just like a song. Like, if you can make someone feel something with the words and the music that you're creating, then you created something good, right? So, I mean, this piece is pretty textural. It'd probably pull you in if you saw it at a museum. Um, it's by William D. Kooning. It's called Interchange, and it sold for $300 million. Jesus, dude. So. <laughs> That's the second most expensive <laughs> yeah. painting ever? Yeah. Wow. Um, no, Leonardo da Vinci. And so his was more than $300 million. I don't remember exactly what it was, <laughs> but. Um, that makes a little bit more sense to me. I mean, the fact that, I mean, Leonardo is one of the, like the, he's one of the great masters, you know, he's one of the, he's an OG. You gotta have. Yeah. Him. Oh, okay. So this is the death of Socrates or. Oh yeah. You totally know this. Yeah, I do know this English. So. Movie. I just kind of put this up to put on the background while we are continue talking, talk, blah, blah, talking, talking, but, um, tacoing. <laughs> man, did, is that why Socrates died? He did Dude, if this tacoing? podcast could ever get sponsored by watermelon. Cry! Hey. Who do I need to talk? Who do I need to talk to? <laughs> I will drink, dude, I'll drink a case every, I'll drink four of those a day. Easily. <laughs> Four anyway. LaCroix or four cases? No, not four cases. That's too much. Four LaCroix. That four LaCroix is, is pretty easy. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Maybe I should just paint some LaCroix, do a ca giant canvas of like LaCroix, kind of like Andy Warhol, pop art style. Yeah, style. This, is pop, this is pop art. Look at this. Pink, <laughs> green, and Vaporwave, bro. It is vaporwave. This actually, you know what? One of the reasons I think I like buying LaCroix is because it reminds me of going to the mall when I was a child and drinking out of those, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, so I know. You, if okay. any, you probably have an article of clothing based on that. I have a face mask actually that is the paper cup, the blue and yep. like and, the teal and purple paper cup. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, the death of Socrates, this is just, I kind of brought, I have a picture, the picture that we started with, which was um, the birth of Venus, really beautiful painting. Um, and then this one, Death of Socrates, this is a different kind of value of art, right? So. Tells a story. Well, yeah. And this is, this is what you would call like academic art. So, and to be considered academic art, it's, the, the government gave you a stamp of approval. They were like, this is the type of Something art important. that exists and nothing, everything else isn't art, right? So 
right which was really popular in like the renaissance area era and like roman times greek like most european art is considered academic art right? right so and there's a type of like formulaic look to it too so right. every it's like things are like if you just think about the sistine chapel and like everything that's in the louvre for the most part Mm-hmm. And like this painting right here, it all has a very similar style to it. And this is what art looked like for a very long time. Yeah, it to me, it's it, like this type of, so this is the type of art I am most familiar with. And yes, that is possible. Well, not possibly. It's definitely because I was more exposed to this type of art growing up. Um, as I've gotten older, I've definitely gravitated more like towards Eastern styles of art because I think that they're more, it's more kind of focused on landscapes and it's minimalist. But anyway, I digress. The, this, the death of Socrates and this type of art in general sort of, to me, it's very connected to a religious ideal of some sort. So the story sort of tells the subtext of what is being painted usually has to do with something that's religious or um, in this case, philosophical and you know everything is framed in a way to give to give the story meaning of some sort and i guess i do think it's interesting and i do really appreciate really religious art because the art that you were showing that like like for example the philip um or whoever jackson pollock sorry yeah the jackson pollock piece yeah it it feels very modern because modern being you know modernity is kind of crazy but it doesn't really call to like a really higher, like you you showed me pictures earlier this year of the Vatican. And that blew my mind because all that told me was, and I'm not Catholic and I think the Catholic church has done a lot of really fucked up stuff. Um, <laughs> but I do think there is value in religion to a certain degree. And I think that those pieces of art as uh, one could say like grandiose and sort of opulent over the top and expensive it's all in created in this vein of this like super high calling, this like religious calling that I think is very, um, it's very important, you know? And I think a lot of modern art kind of misses that a little bit. Or displays it in a different way. Yep. Uh, Because really with art like this, it had to have that stamp of approval by the government because Right. If you were, if you were yeah. an artist, or else you get, <laughs> you get Da Vinci'd. <laughs> but um, if you, if you were an artist during that time, you were commissioned. You weren't just like freely making art as, as much as you wanted. I mean, you could, but your role as an artist was to create art for the government and mm-hmm. to train other artists. So like Rodin, the guy who did. Um, the thinker you know that bronze statue the thinker everyone knows that one classic right he his role in society was to make commissions and to be a teacher all he did was teach other people how to do that specific style of art so bronze casting i believe and um and just do commissions and stuff and his art is everlasting which is really what's incredible about this t- style of art is that it will la- it's classic it's 
it lasts forever. It will never go away because it's the basis of what art is today. And it is very, you would say, you could say Eurocentric. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, But beautiful too. We can talk about the I love the cherubs, the flying cherubs. Yes, the cherubs, which were really common. This was, um, cherubs were usually a, everything had a message too with art like that you you could look at a painting like this and know exactly what it's supposed to mean based off of consistent styles throughout art during that time like cherubs and cupid often were like like this is venus right um this is the birth of venus and so it often showed like sexuality, intimacy, vanity, love, all of that. So that's what and the qualities, qualities associated at that time too with, um, and I guess you could say cross-culturally to an extent, but like the ideal form of like the female or the ideal yeah. form of like the, you know, the male. Um, all women were painted the same way in that time too. Like they were always shaped like this, small breasted, um, but they were never looking directly into the audience. They were always, their hand was always across their face or they were looking at Cupid or whatever else, or specifically with a nude woman. Mm -hmm. And their hand was either over their breast or like covering themselves in some way. Um, So women were depicted like, I don't really know what word to say as um, Almost, um like well i guess i guess the best way to think about it how i would think about it would be how how men were depicted and what was the opposite of that i guess and juxtapose the two i look well, at paintings like that and i think frigid like fragile um mm-hmm. off limits um, yeah. because they weren't necessarily sexualized that right. makes sense. It was more of like a a symbol of of just women, I guess. I, I can't, I know a word for it, but I just can't. Totally. So I know, it, yeah, I hear what you're saying. So, okay. I'll, I'll kind of like walk you through the movements of art Please history, do. Right? Please do. So I, this, is, went... this is a master class, a, a quick pod, podcast master class. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Let's do it. We just went through academic art. So mm-hmm. with academic art, you're looking mostly at like neoclassism and class. Can you hold that thought for one second? Art. I'm gonna grab I'm gonna grab another LaCroix. Gotta pull have up a LaCroix for this stuff, you know? Dude, I know. I got to. Here, pull up one of pull Maybe it up. Maybe Lagunita can uh can sponsor us. Oh yeah. <laughs> <Pull something. laughs> BRB, 30 seconds. All right, son. All right, throw it up. So where, what are we starting with? Okay, so we started with classism mm-hmm. um, or classicalism, neoclassicalism and Renaissance art, right? Yeah. And then it, 
so it slowly digressed. I don't necessarily remember what the jump from Renaissance art to Impressionist art, right? We're just going to pretend that was all um, I know just the a big jump. I know the Enlightenment <laughs> happened, happened between, those, between yeah. those times. So maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But it pretty much all looked the same, right? Like right. even if we look at impressionism, Maybe which it's just like one is a little less boring. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is technically modern art because this is right. a Monet. Monet is this is Water Lilies by Monet. This is probably one of his most famous paintings. And Monet is a beautiful painter. Like yeah. it's hard it's hard to really capture his beauty on right. um on a screen but if you see this in real life it's way more the colors are just they grab you more and they really just pull you into the painting and a, a lot painter. of these paintings too are large when you're in a yeah. room with one of these paintings even going to the crocker in sacramento which i uh am going to tell everyone who ends up listening to this to please go down to the crocker and support the crocker because they've got some wonderful art in there and um yeah it's amazing standing in front of these paintings and seeing what it's ev what every brush stroke looks like in person because you just you can't recreate it digitally yes um also the crocker art museum is hands down one of my favorite art museums i've ever been to and i've been to a lot of museums so crocker art is just great so i fully support that um this is impressionism right so this other impressionist paintings or painters are um, Rembrandt, Monet. Yeah, those are the big Van ones. Gogh. You could consider him, but he was mostly a, a post-impressionist. So mm -hmm. the reason why I'm talking about impressionism and post-impressionist um, impressionism is because post-impressionism really was the big jump of changing the way art looked in in my opinion because let's do a side-by-side -side comparison of these oh. two paintings okay yeah so here we go Ooh. i don't know what just happened there beep boop bop beep beep boop bop okay so have, to have the mask on all right here we go so this painting right here is you would consider realism. Realism. So this is a beautiful painting of um, what is his name? It's someone specific. One second. Yeah, the Sorry. one on the left is is they're both gorgeous, but in completely different ways. Oh yeah. So okay, this this. This one on the left is titled Bashi Bazook. I could, mm -hmm. I'm probably not saying that correctly. It was made in 1868. It's a French painting. It's done by a French person. I'm not going to say his name because I know I'm going to say it wrong. But Please it's a beautiful pray. painting. <laughs> I'll try. It's, I'm going to say Jean Leon Jerome. Jean Leon Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> um, the okay. Building. And then the one. <laughs> And then the one on the right, so these are two, those who are listening, both the pictures that we are comparing right now are both portraits. So the one on the left by the French 
by Jean G. Jerome Hell yeah. <laughs> that, is a realism painting. So it looks like a photograph. Every detail in it is, it looks like you can even see the highlights on his sweater to the point where you know exactly where the light is coming from. It's, it's beautiful. It looks yeah. like a, a photograph. Is it a, is it a, is it a French? It looks like an African tribal, like a traditional tribal. Yeah. Um, man, I mean, I don't know where from, maybe like Northern Morocco or something. Who, it was painted in 1868. So I'm imagining that this was during the time where the French were colonizing and they probably did a portrait of someone, someone in the someone territory that they'd colonized. The territory that they were trying to colonize. Yeah. Regardless, it's, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful painting. Um, the one on the right is, um, he, the guy who did this, his name is Paul Cezanne. I'm also, Cezanne, I'm going to say that wrong. And it sucks that I'm saying that wrong because he is considered the father of post-impressionism, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is, this is a portrait of his wife and it's his wife's name in a red dress and it was um it started he started painting in 1888 and he finished it in 1890 so around the same only like a 20 year difference here right and you can kind of see here how art is starting to be broken down right. you know like this post-impressionist painting you can see he's experimenting with color more this the color on this on his wife's skin you can see the pink and the blue and the green hues that you would normally all mix together to create a, a solid skin tone color and it has the the painting on the left where it's depicting realism you it has depth depth to it you can mm -hmm. see it the does features look like are more defined. Picture. It looks three-dimensional. And the one on the right is, it doesn't have any depth to it. It looks flat. And so you can just see here how it's, art is it's starting to break down in the experimentation. Both are very powerful to me in different ways. But I think the one on the right, um, the post-impressionist painting of his wife, because he's using different cut because he's not trying to recreate something for you know verbatim or wh what act what it actually is like the one on the left is clearly this someone posed for a portrait and this whoever whoever painted it um painted it and act like a representation of that but the post-impressionist painting because of the mixture of the blue and the different hues it gives the painting a different it makes me feel like his wife it, it's a very kind of almost melancholy feeling because of those added elements to it that make it slightly that make it differ from re, differ from reality mm -hmm. in that way and i believe these are also both french paintings that are done within 20 years of each other so <laughs> it's pretty incredible the different messages that you can get and the vast difference in style here too it's it's pretty crazy so then you go from that to 
then we go to modern art, you know, and modern art, this painting is really beautiful too. I love this one. Um, This painting is by... I don't remember, but it's untitled and it's depicting a black man as a police officer on a police car. And I just find it, it's, he looks strong and I just think it's a beautiful painting and you can just see the texture of it. And it's a great painting. Yeah, I need there's, to tell you. there's like the space behind him that almost, almost could resemble uh, street lights or something. Yeah but it's abstract enough that it's sort of it just kind of feels like this uh it feels very futuristic and like very hyper real like i i remember it i heard someone describe art like this to me once and it made a lot of sense where art is visual art specifically depicts something and visualizes something that is more real than reality so like he was talking about Van Gogh in this case, and I love Van Gogh. I have actually right in front of me um, a street cafe in Paris, that painting. Ooh, I love that one. That one's so yeah. good. And and what it does to me, it's like, obviously it's not an act. It's not a photo photorealistic representation of a street, a night cafe in Paris, but the painting captures both the visual representation and the mood of what that is. And that to me is, is hearing, hearing that said that, you know, visual art and, and art in general captures the hyper reality of things really stood out to me. And it made me go, oh yeah, holy shit. That's actually what, that is what it does. Um, mm-hmm. This painting right here does that, does that to me too. Yeah. And Especially it's interesting. I actually just noticed that these background lights are street lights. So he's yeah. almost sitting in like a parking lot or something. Yeah, it's very it's neat. Cool. It's by uh, Carrie James Marshall and it was done in 2015. So it's a pretty new painting. Pretty new. But then also, if this one, I think you're going to get a kick out of this one. <laughs> oh, wow. That looks like some people's it's... art on Instagram. <laughs> so this is, it's just a blue background of just white sketched drawn squares and it's by Richard Alcrick. It's titled Art and Language Number Two and it was done in 2014. So in you asked me huh? Do you know how do you, did this piece get sold? No, it's actually it's at the MoMA. So um oh, okay in San Francisco. Yeah so and most of the time when art pieces are at the um at a museum they're not sold to the museum they're like borrowed or lended to gotcha. um which is interesting in itself but um you just mentioned van gogh and that that painting of him in the cafe or not him in the cafe but the what it it's called like a night in paris or something like that is it red and green does it have red and green in it with some yellow um, it's got a lot of yellow and blue and the yeah, a lot of orange too. I mean, I'm I'm looking at it sort of in this l- little bit of light that I have. The thing I love about my favorite thing about Van Gogh is how he paints stars, which is how when I look up at night in the sky and there's a lot of stars out, it's overwhelming 
just the, the vast number of them, you know, but Van Gogh just does these big splotchy stars that take up the whole sky. And yeah. it's very, it's very kind of, um, yeah, it's a very beautiful way of, of painting the night. Um, well, it's, it's funny that you say that because he, he felt the same way. He, if you, you should look up um, the letters that he wrote to his brother because that really told his life story and how he felt about things. And a lot of, even with those letters, a lot of Van Gogh's life was kind of a mystery. Mm -hmm. And very tragic. Very tragic. And, but he felt the same way about the sky. And he has a couple quotes in those letters about exactly what you just said of how entranced he was by the night sky and how it spoke to him. So you can, you can yeah, see that. that yeah. It's pretty awesome. But that I was asking what colors it was mm -hmm. or what colors it, yeah, what color <laughs> it was because he did this one painting that it's of a cafe somewhere and it's red and green. It's not just red and green, but those are the two main colors in it. And he did that specifically because he hated those colors and because yeah. i can tell because i know so much of his other work is those same mm -hmm. blues and oranges and yellows and yeah well he hated those colors together and he found it really funny that that was the color that americans used for christmas because he just hated that color combo and but pretty funny um speaking of van gogh starry night i'll show you this one this is a Ooh, that's cool it's guess what it is you'll never guess you'll seriously never guess um i'm okay i'm gonna choose the most ridiculous thing that just popped into my head it is the it's a close-up of someone's armpit <laughs> um okay no, kind of right. kind of um Great. this was actually created in a lab at the california institute of technology and it is DNA strands folded in half over and over and over and over again to recreate Van Gogh's Starry Night. And it, this image, this painting, well, you can't even call it painting, this work is the size of a quarter. Holy so, shit. yeah, pretty cool. That is incredible. Really crazy. I know. I didn't even know that you could like fold DNA strands in half, but um, leave it to the geniuses at Caltech. Okay. So before we talk about futurism, which I think you're going to really enjoy, and it's going to be really cool. I will say right now, I love, I love futurism. Okay. So you already know what it is. Cool. Some, so, yeah. To, actually, so I do follow a lot, a lot of artists on Instagram um, who I guess you could sort of category categorizes futurist artists or like kind of the cyber punk artists or anything like that i'd love that kind of dystopian future vision um well first of all because i think we're sort of headed there but that's a whole different <laughs> that's a whole different <laughs> um i'm gonna take you back to the very like the oldest take me back creation ever to exist that we know 30 million the years yeah um well, not that long but yeah take me back to the first art okay so this is called the shavut cave and probably saying that wrong um i'm French not good man. at pronouncing things i know i'm going to be a teacher but you know what 
we're all working on it. <laughs> um, no, I can't remember. IPad. <laughs> You're good. Yeah, I'll just give everyone their iPad and they'll they'll learn that way, right? That's how. This is amazing. Works. Old old Neolithic art. It, I mean, I'm just saying that word like I understand this is from the Neolithic period. Um, <laughs> it's actually it's, from the Paleo Paleo Paleolithic period. That's how you say it. This is incredible so, to me. Yeah. So you can you can look this up. It's called the Shavut Shav Shavet Cave, maybe C H A V U E C T. It sounds French again. Did the this is this in France? No, it was named uh, by the person who discovered it in 1994. So this cave was discovered in 1994, wow. and these are carbon dated back to. 30,000 BCE. Jeez. So super old. This is the oldest creation we know of. So the we're looking at um, a they use like charcoal and things like that. They had they like burn the ends of sticks and they like charcoaled into the sides of caves. And this is what it looks like in the actual cave. It's not only is it the oldest piece like oldest creation ever known that we know of currently, blah, blah, blah. It, it's in great condition. They actually have this cave sealed off to the public. Nobody can enter it. It's, it's like sealed off with a steel wall and everything. So it's well, not even light. Even people taking pictures of it would ruin it after time. Yeah. There's this cave somewhere else that was, I can't remember where it is, but they opened it up to the public and it's completely destroyed now, not from people actually destroying it, but just from people being there and breathing. It's created a mold in the cave and completely destroyed all of the, all of the drawings on the cave. So this is really cool. Um, but I think this is so much cooler and the picture won't truly, truly, truly show. Oh, dude. And I, I know about Gobekli Tepe. Yeah. To, to a, a little bit. It's crazy. At the first human, so that's, this is the oldest recorded um, archaeological, I guess you could say, um, permanent human settlement that has been, am, am, I, am I correct? Yes. This was, this is in Turkey. Mm -hmm. And from the Neolithic period. So this is, um, older than Stonehenge and this is where this is found in like the Fertile Crescent. This is where people started growing food, learning how to farm, That's really creating I mean. civilizations. So then really modern day, modern day Iraq, modern day Iraq and southern southern Turkey for people who don't know. And it's it's interesting because when the first time it was ever discovered, it was totally dismissed. Like archaeologists were like, there's nothing here. And then five years later, archaeologists went back and was like, this is absolutely insane. Like all of these sculptures that we're looking at were created before Stonehenge was. Like, wow. so, so, and this is like right after the Ice Age too, where like, farming communities really started happening and people started living closer together and like yeah the whole fertile crescent dealio how humans actually started the farming revolution 
Right. And, um, but the way that this is set up is it's rings. So it's like, it just, it's like a circle in the middle and then it just goes out in rings and they're still finding stuff. Like it's still under excavation. They're still looking for things. It's pretty incredible. But okay. Now that we've gone way back and we've kind of talked about the basics, we can jump from post-impressionism to modern art. And you also asked me what is modern art? And I looked at that question and I was like, woof because there isn't really a clear definition of modern art because it's such no a clear wide... definition from the modern world <laughs> yeah <laughs> well modern if you just say modern art mm-hmm. modern art is a really widespread timeline right it modern art allegedly starts at 1860 so 1860 was who i just showed you like um right. monet and which his art you could still kind of consider has that stamp of approval by the government you know it has that simple look to it or I would actually let me take that back not simple look it has that same style you know I know of uh so as an as a writer and English nerd um the distinction between modern and postmodern I don't know tell me if this is somewhat correct I know in terms of in terms of literature, the distinction between modern and postmodern, again, kind of runs along those lines of like 1860-ish to like up to the end of World War II. Um, And really in like modern, like in modern poetry, like Ezra Pound is a great example, like just this kind of focus on on the objective world. You know, you have this movement called like objectivism, which uh, seeks to understand the world in like sparser language as it is, um, it's much more idealistic and focused on just the sort of, um, like it's it's very kind of high-minded, you know, this is, a lot of it took place before and sort of during like these huge uh, cataclysmic events of World War One and World War Two, where millions and millions of people died. And I know that in the aftermath of modern literature, you get postmodern literature, which is very, um, the focus is a lot, is much more, it's much more about deconstructing the reality imposed or set up, as they saw, by modern art. So modern art was making a statement about the world, that statement was more or less kind of factually incorrect, and postmodern art is about deconstructing that and basically kind of relying on the construction and the construction meaning just the sort of general idea and theme of whatever it is the artist wants to create. That is really interesting because it totally it it lines up perfectly because modern art would be considered from 1860 to 1870 so around the time that you're the timeline just lined up. They, the artists held out a little bit longer than the than the literature uh, yeah. the writers, I guess. I mean, some people would even say that modern art is considered to today too, but I think that's too big. It's too it's too wide right. of who, category. And who because, defines? So, like, I know we're about to get into get into modern art, but really quick, what is is 
so I know a lot of things are defined essentially by like the intelligentsia. Like if someone says this is a new kind of idea and a new sort of, this is a new group of people who are making and creating this certain way and it takes a name, then that is the name, you know, it's like, there's a new type of rap music. It's going to be called this. There's a new type of art. It's going to be called this. Who is it? Is it critics? Is it museums? Is it the artists themselves? Is it like who kind That's of sets a great up? question. I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of like who determines what, like if a word is real or not, you know, who, who are, who's the board of committee? Like who's yeah. the committee? out there in the world that says YOLO is allowed to be in the dictionary or not. Like, that, I don't sure. really, I don't really it's know true. where it's these a subjective terms. objective argument. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's an answer, but like, I'm sure that the word surrealism came from somewhere and it may have been Dolly himself, but it, it could have not been, you know? Right. So, um, there's a lot, just like with every other movement of art, there's like sub movements of art so within modern art you have pop art surrealism impressionism cubism art deco minimal minimalism data or data futurism um and we can go ahead and start with futurism because i feel like futurism is pretty cool so the god of the god the father of futurism was this uh this guy you know who this guy is? No, he, he reminds me of like a, this is how I imagine like hipster barista dudes are gonna, <laughs> look, in, are gonna look in 20 years. Yes, and <laughs> no, that's how they look now. Totally. Well, that's how they look now, but when they, when they don't have any hair and their mustache is a little bit <laughs> more. You can't uh, tell me that you've never, have you never seen a, like a hipster barista with like a shaved head? in a little tiny oh, dude I've, I've seen yeah i've seen that yeah. they look kind of like totally what they look it, like. it's the it's the it's the like old english bare knuckle boxer look but without yes. without any of the uh um <laughs> without any of the testosterone <laughs> judgment. so this hipster barista man is yeah. filippo marinetti and he is italian and in italy He's like the father of futurism. Like this man straight up wrote a manifesto um, called the Manifesto of Future Painters, Futurist Painters. And um, he uh, unfortunately was also a fascist. And what's the most- what's fascist. The most, yeah. Yeah. And so the, the whole idea of futurism in the art world was it was based off of um, destroying thing, like destroying the future or destroying the past and like going for the future. Mm -hmm. It glorified modern, like modern times. It aimed to liberate Italy from the way of the weight of the past. Um, It focused on speed and technology and automobiles and And technology and industry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the industrial city, you can see all of these things are really common within art. So I'll sort of correlate with like art deco type stuff, like the sort of like, uh, like metropolis, this kind of like art deco-y, like super sort of like, um, 
almost like this vision of a city as sort of a holy place almost just like super like I don't, I don't know if that's making any sense, but like if you know, if you ever look at old movie posters from like the twenties or thirties, they have this very real, like very like kind of futuristic uh, mm-hmm. representation of like the metro area or like urban area. Whenever I think of Art Deco, I always think of the cover of Great Gatsby. And Definitely. I think of, I think of Great Gatsby a lot. And I guess you could say it's kind of the same, but I feel like, futurism was more intense like it it had some like fascist motives behind it like i i have some quotes from his manifesto if you want to yeah you want to listen let's dig um, into the fascist manifesto um with our enthusiastic adherence to futurism we will destroy the cult of the past the obsession with the ancients the ancients and the academic formalism totally invalidate all kinds of imitation elevate all attempts of originality however daring however violent bear bravely and proudly the smear of madness which with they will try to gag all innovators regard art critics as useless and dangerous (laughs) (laughs) rebel against the tyranny of words harmony and good taste and other loose expressions which can be used to destroy the works of Rembrandt, Rodin, and Goya. Sweep the whole field of art clean of all themes and subjects which have been used in the past. Support and glory in our day-to-day world, a world which is going to be continually and splendidly transformed by victorious science. The dead shall be buried in the earth's deepest bowels. Yeah. So that's him talking about art, you know, which is pretty, it's pretty intense. So like art, I think art deco kind of had like the same idea of like future. Hell yeah, brother. Right. Drive a car and drink a bunch of wine and not wear seatbelts. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Totally. But this, this had a whole other level to it. And the irony of futurism, futurism is that a lot of these painters were fascists and they um they all went to war and they most of them died in war and the irony for me behind that is that the future that they were fighting for died with them them. you know yeah yeah absolutely um so pretty interesting i mean obviously that guy (laughs) is a terrible guy but um he started a whole movement like futurism was a huge movement and, and in, in the context there, of time too it's like yeah obviously fascism is terrible we don't want to go back to it and there's no mm-hmm. real excusing it but to understand it you know looking at the way technology was transforming the world coming out of the industrial revolution and mm-hmm. you know prior prior to world war one and between world war one and world war two this was essentially a giant experiment on both the far right and the far left, because you know these things didn't exist in a vacuum. The Soviet Union was, co- I mean, they were coming to power at this time too, and people were genuinely unsure about the best method of um, creating a country and creating a nation, and they didn't understand that 
giving totalitarian control to one person is there's a lot of idealism in that in that uh, yeah. manifesto a lot of idealism dangerous idealism yeah like the dead shall be buried in the earth's deepest bowels what does that mean dude that's talking about painting just, that's emo <laughs> hello emo bro he was listening to uh chem my chemical romance every time he painted my chemical my <laughs> chemical warfare <laughs> <laughs> um okay so from futurism then you have pop art surrealism so i'll pull up one of my most favorite paintings of oh, this all is picasso. time who is it this is picasso right hell no bro no i thought Lee. it was i thought it was picasso no picasso doesn't do anything like oh this. no I, did, did this guy do the melting clock yes okay that's i got i get him confused yeah salvador dali dali that's right duh. he's the one that has like the mustache up to his eyebrows right? yes yes crazy I did, dude I dali. that's who i that's what i meant um this crazy is very dude. cool i actually have seen this painting in person it's in the um the vatican mm -hmm. um not very big it's but it's it's beautiful this piece is titled soft angel in a wait sorry soft monster in an angelic landscape mm. um so i this big lumpy kind of looks like reminds me of a whoopee okay. cushion or a kidney is on like it kind of reminds me of what he's kind of depicting here is like a sacrifice you know like yep. I think of what's the one biblical story of the son trying to or the father killing trying to kill his son um, for a sacrifice to God. That's Ab is it Abraham Abraham and Oh my God. Oh my god, I know that the brothers. Yeah. And that wasn't a sacrifice, that was straight up murder, bro. Yeah, that was murder. <laughs> this is it was I believe it was Abraham and, and Isaac yeah something like that there's a beautiful painting in crocker art museum actually depicting that moment um and it's pretty scary because the sheep are in that painting the sheep are like hiding behind the bushes with really wide eyes and it's, it's a pretty interesting painting but i this whoopee cushion soft monster thing reminds me of that biblical story right mm -hmm. and but it's sacrificed it's wounded it's cut it's has a tip cut and off it's limp showing that it's dead and then these angelic looking things in the back all look like they're rejoicing like the the sacrifice actually happened and this is purely just my interpretation of the painting right, right? Right. I've never, I've never looked up what this painting actually means, or if he, even if he put out what it actually means. But it Clearly really some juxtaposition between the yeah between the whatever this pedestal is and the thing that's on it. With I, to me, that looks like a stomach and the angelic creatures. I mean, just the fact that he's placing those two things next to each other means that, in my eyes, that he's making. I, I definitely relate to that to what you said about sacrifice and mm -hmm. yeah that's very interesting i could look at this for a long time yeah and it's what makes this painting really incredible too is the um foreshortening and foreshortening is something you really 
have to really figure out as an artist and it's really hard in foreshortening is when you take a 3d or a 2d image and then you like elongate it to where it actually has depth to it so if you if i was drawing someone laying down i would have to elongate their body on a two-dimensional surface to actually give that image depth right. and like if you take all of these figures away here and maybe just leave this well no even take the the little kidney whoopee cushion stomach looking thing out That's not depth and all all the figures out of here and you just left the color then it would just be a two-dimensional surface but because he added these things and gave them depth like this looks huge compared the angelic thing in the way back looks huge compared to these and it's a beautiful painting. So this is surrealism. I could talk about Dali forever. His yeah. art really, my, the two artists that has inspired me the most to be an artist has been Dali and Picasso. Both terrible human beings, but Both really Spanish great too, right? Huh? Both Spanish too, right? Um, I know, I know Picasso, I'm pretty sure Picasso is Spanish. I also think Picasso might've been involved in I can't remember. He, I definitely know he was involved in the Spanish Civil War in some way. He was, and he actually became a communist at like the age 68 or something like that, like old. But I don't believe he was from Spain. He spent most, I can't remember. I, he spent almost all of his life in Spain for sure. But I can't remember whether he was born there or not. And Picasso is a great artist because he really defined what it was to change art because if you look at his older stuff oh, he yeah. he was a prodigy he was a great I artist some of it, some of he, he was what you would call an academic artist at the very beginning of his artist career he studied he, that path yeah and then he was just like fuck this <laughs> i'm gonna do whatever the hell i want did, um uh i don't think it's it's not the scream. I'm thinking I'm getting Dali confused again, but it's essentially, it's the giant painting. Uh, it's very long and it depicts war. And yeah, that is called, I'll tell you really quick, that painting actually was very controversial and it was huge. And it actually depicted a specific moment in war when, here it is, um, it's called Guronica. Veronica? Veronica, yeah. Hmm. Um, so he, where he was, or somewhere where he was in Spain, was bombed, and he was so, so torn by this that he painted it, and I wish I could show you. I don't have an, I actually thought about um, showing this one. I have it in my textbook, and I'm looking at it right now, but it was 25 feet long and it was just black and white and he actually they wouldn't the government wouldn't let him show it it was like so controversial but it was cubism too which cubism alone at that time because academic art was still pretty popular in that moment like critics were they were way more intense than they are now. Like, I feel like there aren't real art critics now. You can kind of make wherever, whatever you want. 
and just be an artist and be who you are and no one will really judge what your art is but back then like your art still had to look a certain way for it to be considered art and this was cubism and what we're looking at right here too is also cubism so picasso is the father of cubism and dali is like the father of surrealism yeah and but that the painting that we we're talking about Veronica, um really crazy it's really cool what is, what is cubism i mean i noticed just by looking at this painting it's box it's it's almost it's a kind of boxy but in like a really interesting way like mm -hmm. how would you define cubism mm. or at least if i were to put it into my own terms because i don't know the actual real definition i would say boxy with a little mix of abstract um you can definitely like still point out figures and see what they're looking at but also a huge thing of cubism too is um looking at one thing from different perspectives so if you okay. look at this painting this is called um do, 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 this is a pop this is like the first cubism painting that picasso put out and it was also once again insanely controversial like everyone was like what are you doing that's yeah. not art who told you you could do stuff like that so this painting is actually um i believe it's french it, it's titled french but i'm going to say it in english it's ladies of argon it was made in 1907 and if you look at this painting um this figure right here so the second figure from the left looks like she's laying down when everyone else right. is standing up and she's like almost laying down on a bed and the, one of the reasons why this painting was so controversial is because this is depicting a brothel um which pablo picasso frequent brothels um and so and sexuality like in 1907 was still something that different. wasn't really talked about you know well in this woman too i noticed at the bottom of the painting the woman on the left her foot the shot the color on her foot is almost turned like like you could again from this pers this perspective thing you're saying you could almost see her laying down next to them or standing because of the way the light is hitting the top yeah. of her foot and not the bottom in the middle mm -hmm. That's very neat. Yeah, it's really interesting. And so we talked earlier with like Renaissance paintings and classic paintings of how women never looked at their audience. They're always looking at something else or their faces face was covered. Like in the birth of Venus, her head, her hand was like over her face, right? Mm -hmm. Another reason why this was so controversial is because these women are looking directly at the viewer yeah. and depicting a brothel. It, it was like, it kind of evokes a, an emotion of like, you're walking into this room or you're in, you're stepping into their time. You know, this is yeah. their time, their place. When looking at the birth of Venus, you're admiring this woman and it's a different feeling, you know? Their eyes are definitely telling you something too. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that they're staring right at you. It's, there's almost a natural discomfort that's sort of evoked, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so then we'll kind of, I'll go over a couple more paintings. 
Yeah, um, I have, a, I have a, a few questions about how you think we can do this. We can, I'll ask those after the, uh, after you show these, but I'm curious, just so you kind of know where I, where I want to go. It's like about the way that the internet and Instagram and all of social media. So just, just prime that, put it, put it in your chamber to think about when we go. I'm over. already, I'm already, I have a, I have a way of getting there. I'm already okay. on the way. Okay. 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 I'm okay. In, okay. So, cause we're slowly getting there, right? Yeah, we're we're, getting we're the, kind of the, like at the early 1900s. So mm -hmm. then we look at minimalism. I'll go over this one really quick. This is a famous painter named Piet um, Mondrian, I believe. I'm probably saying his name wrong, but he was a minimalist painter. Um, and it looks, honestly, this looks, the lines are so straight. It's crazy. This is all done by hand. This is an oil painting. Hmm. So this, this painting for people who are listening is called Broadway Boogie Woogie. Cool. <laughs> and it's just simple straight lines of yellow, blue, and red, primary colors. So anytime you look at something that's primary colors, it's automatically going to grab your attention because yes. those are all across from each other on the color wheel. So scientifically, your eyes are already brought to it. And all three of these colors can make up every other color of the rainbow. Mm -hmm. So these three colors will always, always catch an eye, even, even by themselves. Red will always catch your eye. Blue will always catch your eye. And yellow will always catch your eye. Think so of, uh, immediately think of fast food. It's always yeah. either yellow or red. Ding, ding, ding. That is exactly, yeah. Uh, graphic designers often use these colors especially when creating logos because your eye will always catch to those so um so he was whatever whatever about him he was pretty simple simple living Interesting. minimalist painting right so then we'll fall into um i don't really know how they pronounce this data 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 d-a-d-a -D -A, that's what it's called right mm -hmm. um is that a painting or a sculpture um, so this one is a sculpture, and then this one is a um, recreation of the Mona Lisa, which will then bring me into um, today's art Yeah. and how much I hate the Mona Lisa, okay? okay so okay. this, both of these, we're looking at on our left here, a recreation of the Mona Lisa. It's titled L-H-O-O-Q, and then on the right, we have a urinal. And on the bottom left of the urinal says Armut 1917. The person who created both of these, so this is, these are both by the same artist, um, is not named Armut. His name is Marcel Duchamp. And he really created the, the whole movement of just recreating art, right? Right. Because how many times have you seen the Mona Lisa recreated? How many times have you seen Starry Night recreated? I already showed you a, a version of Starry Night earlier in this, yeah. in this talk. Reminds so, me of like Andy Warhol, too, and his sort of connections to that. Like, so you're, you're totally in my brain right now. I was just going to talk about Andy Warhol next because Andy Warhol has been sued three times throughout his artist, artistic career for plagiarism i would have expected more honestly i would have expected more too but yeah. i believe that number is 
I don't know. Yeah. He, it's crazy. I don't, I personally don't like Andy Warhol. I don't think he's Not a good a artist. I, I think the art that he has created has really took a minimal amount of effort. He's like the original influencer. He's what? He's like the original influencer. He was just yeah. he was cool. Totally. And he had that look to him. He had the style. He had the chicks. He, yeah. Whatever. And honestly, I don't know how he had the chicks because he's not a good looking man. But regardless, this guy, uh, Marcel, this Mona Lisa painting, all he did was put a mustache on her. That was it. He just oh, really took crazy. the whole painting and put a mustache and a goatee and bam, it's art, right? What he did on the right was take a ceramic urinal and write R. Mutt 1917 on it. Bam. Okay, so these art. types of people piss me the fuck off. I agree. Because there's no talent to that. No. There, it's, <laughs> there's just no talent to that. Talent okay. is something that okay. I will. I'll get off my soapbox because we're gonna. No, get no. Tell me, tell me about it because I totally agree. It's okay. Annoying. In order to create art, and this is why I take a lot. This is why I. I mean, as a musician and, and writer, I do. You know, I, I I think I have some sort of understanding of of what aesthetic art or you know what is uh, I guess what's the word um, what makes you think and it takes a certain type of talent to create something that makes you think. And talent meaning inherent and developed ability, practice, something that you, um, I know that we're kind of nowadays, the idea of like meritocracy seems less and less popular, but there are incredibly talented people who have developed their craft making beautiful things. Someone putting something on a piece of paper that's a line or two lines or drawing a box and calling it art because it speaks to some uh, weird feeling inside of us that is completely subjective that will come and go with the next person in line to look at it is not art. You have to have some sort of, just like you can't go to a concert and, ex and someone is gonna, you, you know, if someone, you paid to go to a show and someone walked on stage and just started farting into the microphone you wouldn't say that that's music. Uh, who's to say that it isn't? Well, though? true, because there, there's a guy, there's this Japanese dude who is a, he sells out tours around the world, and all he does is go fucking spastic on, his, on a snare drum and beat the shit out of a snare drum. And all these people stand back, and they cross their arms. And, you know, in my opinion, it's con it connects to this idea of what is um, what is sort of new and cool and edgy and yeah this dude's just beating a snare drum with his head but it doesn't sound good so you know but but here we are at this exclusive show watching something that no one else can see and it's all of a sudden cool and yeah I, I'll get off my soapbox but that's that's just sort of my rant about you need you can have little a tiny bit of talent and still make great art but those people are rare you know there are musicians who are not very talented and yet they can write something poetic and beautiful and or they can get in a room with people who actually know what they're know what they're doing on their instruments and they can create something but art gets away with it more than a lot of other professions do i i i totally agree with you especially 
in the world that we live in now. Yeah. Because it's hard to protect yourself as an artist. Like, Mm -hmm. because it's like with music, if you create a song and someone samples your song, you can figure it out way more and you can you can somehow you can prove it better too but like Andy Warhol ripped people off all the time and he was only sued three times for it and and almost and also I believe the case that I'm going to show you right now was the only one that actually he had to give this woman credit for right so we're looking at on the screen right now a Andy Warhol uh screen print which he was a screen printer which also for just for reference of screen printing screen printing you basically print out an image on a screen and then you print it and you can print it over and over and over and over and create a bunch of images of the same exact thing right Mm-hmm. And you can you could get something off of like a clip art off the web currently like in modern times. Yeah, people do it all the time. Yeah, I could print out a uh, something of my own art onto a uh, like a screen for printing and recreate it a million times, which would be cool. Um, but Andy Warhol did it all the time, and so flowers, which is one of his most famous pieces, he stole from a photograph of a woman who I wish I wrote her name down because she deserves credit, but she but literally identical. If you look at the it's identical, except yeah. that it's a photo. Fo- it's like the imagery is identical. Like right here, this where I can truly see it is this blade of grass right here. Yeah. And this blade of grass, you don't necessarily see it in the flowers, but you definitely see it in like the blade of grass. He took this photograph. He put it on a screen print press or not a screen print press. He just, put it on a screen and then he printed this is not the only version of it he printed a bunch of versions of this and he and then he was sued for it so you know i hope they took a lot of his money so which brings me to yes how much i hate the mona lisa the mona lisa is a terrible fucking painting and the only reason why i say that is because I have no hate towards Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci was the coolest dude ever. He was so intelligent. He was a great painter. He painted the Last Supper. He painted. He painted the Vitruvian Man. Huh? He did the Vitruvian Man. Yeah, he he was a great painter, right? Inventor. And yeah, he invented the blueprints. Yeah, total badass. But he invented the blueprints for a diving suit he had blueprints for tanks he had blueprints in an actual fucking model of a of a town of what of the hold on let me backtrack i got a little heated for a second he has an actual model of a like of a city of what a city should look like to prevent mass spread disease and he built that like well that would be helpful leonardo da vinci yeah where are you at now (laughs) (laughs) which is so he's just a pure genius right yeah in the mona lisa i've seen it in person it's in the louvre um 
it's super small. It's, I don't remember the exact dimensions of it, but it's probably, I don't know, like 14 by 12. That'd be my guess. It's pretty small. So for and people who are watching, I, it's about. <laughs> yeah, it's like this big. <laughs> for people that's listening, it's just small, okay? And it's not very colorful. It's really bland. The woman doesn't even have eyebrows. She's not she, hot. She, yeah, totally not even worth looking at. Bro. <laughs> um, let's, just say, let's just say it. Let's just come out and say it, dude. The Mona Lisa is not hot. <laughs> Unpopular opinion. Yeah. <laughs> but it's behind bulletproof glass in this massive room. And there's a crowd of people behind or in front of the Mona Lisa. All have their cell phones out, all trying to take a picture. In the Louvre, where there's thousands and thousands of other beautiful paintings that you could look at. Like, the Mona Lisa is just, like, big old, not even worth it, you know? Mm -hmm. And really, why the Mona Lisa is so famous. Yeah, why is it so famous? It's because it's the only thing to have ever been stolen from the Louvre. The only thing ever. Every single thing that is in the Louvre has survived through World War II. Everything. The Mona Lisa is the only thing to have been taken or ruined from the Louvre. How'd they get it back? Pretty remarkable. Um, I believe the, um, the guy who stole it just gave it back. I can't remember. That is, the, that is the most ballsy, dopest shit you could do. It eventually just found its way back to the Louvre because when it was stolen, it was like, ah, the only thing that ever been stolen from the Louvre. They haven't it made it, was, I'm sure they've made a movie about the man, the mystery man who stole the Vinci, <laughs> stole the Mona Lisa maybe. And gave it back. The Mona Lisa is really the start of the show in the story yeah. because as soon as this happened, I really think a lot of people want to talk about like what the Mona Lisa represents, right? Like I literally just had to write a, a, a small essay for this for my, for my art class of what does the Mona Lisa represent? And to me, the Mona Lisa represents the act of stealing because it wasn't until after it was stolen that all of these recreations of the Mona Lisa started happening. Now they're stolen all the time. And now the image of the Mona Lisa, yeah. And because of that, there is so much plagiarism. It's like the Mona Lisa basically was the ticket to every artist in the world to just copy from each other. Because Mm -hmm. as soon as the Mona Lisa was stolen, that's when pop art really got famous where Andy Warhol just started doing whatever the hell he wanted and and like if you think about it on Instagram and in modern times there's no true way to protect yourself and we can look at these two artists and we can talk about something called outsider art and outsider art is I would consider myself an outsider artist right um Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> this reminds me of like um some Nevada County hippie. Yeah, like you walk, walk into the dispensary, which is cool. Yeah. 
but, but an art go ahead it's all um it's all out, being an outsider artist is just you're not well known you're not you're not critiqued you basically make whatever you want you don't have a, a specific style um you're not well protected you support yourself on patreon or something like that yeah you're self-taught well even outside artists don't necessarily have a monetary value to any of their art so some yeah. a lot of outside artists just make art to make art um this is called surrender to survival um by justin durr it was made in 2018 this is all pen and paper which is pretty cool um this one down here is called so the top one surrender to survival for those who are listening is if you live in nevada county you have seen something like this in elixart or <laughs> or in the dispensary or even just some some or on the back or on there. some dude's ball cap <laughs> i was gonna say on the back of like some someone's ban on their yeah. way to burning man or something like that so yeah. just imagine that in your head it's very psychedelic looking um and then the other one that we're looking at is called the royal flag and it's by um hendrik formatau it sounds like a french name but um wait hold on no i'm looking at the wrong name his the, the guy who did royal flag his name is thornton dial he's a he's a more modern artist yeah but um this is like it looks like the flag but abstract it looked like he just ripped the flag apart and made it into this like melty textured thick yeah, like melting. yeah. um cool. so outsider artists is just you're just doing your own thing you're making your own art but yeah. what comes the here, I'll just put this yellow, this yellow art piece on the back that's called Piss as our background, just to talk about. Let's talk about this. <laughs> just to talk about um, kind of what art is today. And yeah. um, I kind of want to talk about specifically the difference between plagiarism, plagiarism and appropriation, which you would think is the same thing. But in the art world, apparently it's not. So all of the renditions of the Mona Lisa, you would consider appropriation. Appropriation is just basically copying off of another artist to recreate it. Paca Pablo Picasso has this famous quote of the best art, it goes something along the lines of the best artists out there steal, right? Um, so, but plagiarism is when you just straight up rip someone off without any recognition or anything to them. But it's interesting because you could also say all of the renditions of the Mona Lisa is also plagiarism because nobody asked Leonardo da Vinci for his permission. Right. And so it becomes this like really fine line of how do you protect yourself as an artist and especially if you're just posting your stuff online. Like I post all of my art online. Well, not all of it, but I post a lot of art online and I don't watermark my stuff. Um, anyone, anyone could take one of my drawings 
and do whatever the hell they wanted with it. Please don't do that for anyone that's listening. You'll make my heart fall into a million pieces because it's absolutely devastating when that happens. But like big corporate companies like Forever 21 and Urban Outfitters do that shit all the time. And they, they, what they say is that it was appropriation, that it's not plagiarism, that it's appropriation. And the most, the most recent example that I can think of, I know there's some, like something like this probably happened yesterday, but one that I can specifically remember is Miley Cyrus came out with a new album like a few years ago and she stole art from the sweet feminist on do you know who the sweet feminist is on instagram i think i've heard the name she bakes cakes really she just bakes cakes or desserts and just puts some like political ass shit on there okay i know who you're talking about yeah so she made this one that said abortion is health care and miley cyrus took the same exact cake and took a picture of her licking the cake and used it to promote her album and then that same album that she was trying to promote she stole art from this other instagram artist that's really cool named stephanie sarley do you know who she is Mm-mm. i'll put a note she just up, fingers I like fruit. good creative people online she just fingers fruit dude that's literally all she does okay, I know you're talking just about. like sexual ass shit with fruit and so miley cyrus took one of her videos and either recreate it or just straight up stole it from her to promote her vid her new album and like miley Cyrus didn't give any recognition to these two artists recognize at least say hey i got this idea from so and so yeah or even you have a ton of money why don't you hire those artists to do something for your album they could have made something way cooler for you than just I mean, if they wanted to, they could have made something even better than just what you stole from them. You know, they could have made something specifically for you that would have been better. Absolutely. Well, there's this thing in music, too, which kind of touches on this. And there's been all these all these lawsuits in the last, well, you know, pretty much for the last 60, 70 years. Um, you know, someone will take another artist to court because they like and it gets literally this specific you know it's like okay well you know you wrote you know the song that i wrote the chord progression is g d a minor d g major and you know the the bgs or whoever the fuck wrote a song with those exact same chords and the melody sounds like exactly the same except for this one note and What's crazy with music too, and I'm sure it's, I mean, it's, I guess it's, it'd probably be a little different with art, but you, I've written songs or I've written chord progressions and I go, oh, wait a second. That is this song. That is literally this melody. This is a blur melody, or this is a Anderson Pack or something, you know, it's like some crazy thing like that. And it just, I like those artists. So I naturally occasion you know just it just kind of springs out of me and then i go oh shit you know that's i need to change that because it sounds exactly like something someone else wrote mm-hmm. do you think artists do you think that's like a um like do, i guess with your art do you have that that issue too or is it a little disc is it a little different you know i actually think about this a lot because i do collages all the time and 
I take collage images from like vintage Playboy magazines or National Geographic, like pretty well-known magazines because they have great imagery in it. And oftentimes what I do with my collages is either I'll just use the image and I'll just, cause I don't, I am so scared of something like this happening of me accidentally stealing from someone and me even just thinking about me doing that. I carry a lot of guilt. <laughs> but even though I I don't think I've ever actually done it before but um I'll take like imagery from magazines and I'll alter re-alter it in some way but like sometimes I think I'm like is this kind of what Andy Warhol was doing when he saw an image in a magazine because that the woman who did that photograph she presented it in a magazine it wasn't like she put it in a museum or anything it was in a magazine so he just straight up took it from a magazine and so I I think about that a lot or if with all the art that I see on Instagram like I don't know if I subconsciously like recreate something that I saw and um it's just it's just interesting because I feel like art now compared to what it was a long time ago mm-hmm. it's I mean the very basis of art is the same it's just creating because human beings have this urge to create otherwise there wouldn't have been imagery in a cave from 30,000 BC you know inherent it's in our DNA even even Neanderthals I believe um who are different than homo sapiens and human beings but we were around at the same time I believe even Neanderthals um painted or like had some rudimentary cave paintings even elephants will paint i mean you know you see certain animals paint you know and definitely it's like i see it as this need to like we are all going through this world like i mean human beings are kind of the exception because we are self-aware to a, a very large degree and can think abstractly but still it's like we are animals and we are going through this world relatively um unsure about i mean we have some concepts about this world but we're in a fucking floating ball in space you know and we need a way to make sense of our reality and we do that through art and that is why it's so controversial too um and that's i think why i why i take issue with art that i think uh like not everyone has talent not everyone can make art that is meaningful and i believe that i don't think that's bad um I guess I should say not everyone can make art that is meaningful on a large scale. Anyone can make art that is meaningful to them and they should because it's important. Yeah. But just like certain people can run businesses, some people have a way of communicating uh, the realities around us in this mystery in a way that other people can't. And I think the internet does devalue that to a certain degree. But, I mean, Which I mean, that devaluing makes it harder to be an artist. Yeah, but then it also, I mean, I, I, I follow amazing artists on Instagram that I didn't know existed. And I, every day I'm confronted with new people. So it's a catch-22. It is. It's, it's a double-edged sword because you can create any platform that you want, which is one of the biggest parts of being an artist is catering to a specific audience because the whole idea of art is if you like to create a masterpiece you 
it's really just igniting a feeling within someone, right? And you're not going to be able to do that to anyone that you want, right? You're going to have to do it to a specific audience. That's why there's different genres of music. That's why there's different genres of art. So you can create any type of audience that you want on Instagram or on Twitter or Tumblr or Patreon or whatever. And just go with it. Like, and make money from it too. Like if Van Gogh had an Instagram, he'd be popping off, you know? Or he'd be, he a, would or he'd probably... be a fucking weirdo. <laughs> or he'd be a fucking weirdo. Yeah, also that. <laughs> he'd be DMing but... girls pictures of his severed ear. <laughs> um, but I also think there's a huge difference in between talent and creativity. I feel like talent is something that you are like innately born with you're like born talented like Pablo Picasso was born a prodigy he he knew he knew what he was doing you know but someone anyone could be creative especially if you're exposed to it especially Um, children look at just I mean you're a teacher you work with kids kids are naturally creative and yes (laughs) and in allowing creative situations in a classroom is really important too because you can work on fine motor skills and like you can expose young children to different cultures mm-hmm. and you can have bigger conversations about things like there's actually I wrote this study down a there's actually a report by Americans for the arts that states that students who participate in the arts on the regular are four times more likely to recognize to be recognized for academic academic achievement hmm. and it's because having art in your life just builds confidence and it builds courage yeah. and if you it teaches you if how you to have some, create and think differently too yeah if you have some sort of creative outlet then you're going to you're going to have more constructive thinking skills and um cuz it offers a challenge you know absolutely you're you're given something that you can create and the challenge is what am I going to create? And there is really no limitations on that, what that creation could be, which I don't know about you, but when I'm told to write something and there's no prompt or anything, that's a bigger challenge than being told exactly what to write, you know, because totally. you're like, what do I write? How, where do I start? Where do I go from here? How right. do I end it? What's the middle? It doesn't um, feel, it's not a it, natural process for you. Totally. And, and art kind of does that for you in every, in any kind of form of art too. So for visual art, performance art, music. When I look at a there, piece you know, of paper and I have watercolors or something and I start to paint, I immediately am confronted with this understanding that I'm not a three-year-old anymore or a four-year-old because if I was a little (laughs) kid I would just go for it and I wouldn't care and as soon as I start going I want to I feel confident in other ways I express myself and so to make something that I think I would look at in a museum and go what the hell makes me not want to do it which is this strange which is like you need to do that. I mean, it's important to, um, it's important to experiment creatively because it'll only make what you do and everything else better, you know, mm-hmm. 
or at least maybe not better, but at least give you a certain sense that, um, you know, start with the process. And like with writing and with art, like I'm sure if you were to go and teach a beginning art class, you would start with this idea that art is something that everyone can do. And here are some techniques to avoid the frustration of being pulled out of it completely because of how your expectation, you know, I would do the same thing when I was teaching music. It's like, okay, first of all, you're not going to be able to play a song in two weeks. That's going to be too hard for you. If you've never picked up a guitar, your hands are going to hurt. You're not going to be able to do it. So let's start at like the basic abstract abstraction of what it is to play music and learn from the bottom up. And then you'll find out if it's something you have a natural interest for or not. Mm -hmm. but, but kids don't have that kids just go kids just don't they don't have that self-conscious I mean they're they're creating and learning in the same way that you know you're teaching you I mean essentially kids just absorb information but with adults it's a little different it's like there's that self-consciousness that's always coming up in term when they're creating things yes I think yes. so yeah so yeah. I, like that being said I think it's super important to like start talking about art and being creative at a younger age because it you learn about color you learn about perspective you learn about culture you learn about balance mm -hmm. you you're more in tune with your world and so this can build like a vocabulary and this could build a sense of self and a sense of spatial awareness too like Cause you're learning you're learning all these terms and then you're practicing them and because especially if you start at like a preschool level where you're always having crafts and stuff then you're you're building these fine motor skills while while building this vocabulary too and it's just i don't know i think it's really important art art is just part of everyone's being even yes. if you're like I don't even know, I don't know anything about art. It's, it's part of, it's part of life. Cause when you look at the McDonald's sign, someone had to create that. Absolutely. And even a burger is a piece of art. I would say like culinary. Oh, good food. Good art, food is you know? definitely an art. It's all about the subtleties, man. You can, you can mess up. You can cook something really, you can cook a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese, add a little love dude. And it is way better than it. <laughs> Only Just dino craft and cheese. Yeah. Mac and cheese. Uh, well, one one more thing I I want to touch on before we um, before we call it is I've been really interested in uh, like the psychology of personality and how that manifests and basically as a way to understand kind of what's every what what's been happening politically and how people interface with social media and it just yeah so I've been digging a lot into that and something that the creative um so there's a dimension of the big five personality test called openness okay. and there's two different types of openness there's openness general and openness to experience and creative people usually have very very high openness and openness to experience and very or not very low but usually lower than average conscientiousness and these are traits that are linked to certain, these are traits that are linked to genetics in a lot of ways. And it's interesting to see that 
a lot of the stereotypes of artists being not, they're not interested in a regular nine to five job. What they want to do is create. Um, it was just fascinating and, and openness to experience as a, as a metric is essentially this idea that when you encounter something, if you're someone as high in openness, you, you're more, you're more open to ideas of others. You're more open to experiences. You're more open to, um, you know, a lot of people get like, have you ever gone to a movie with someone that's kind of like a weird movie and people get uncomfortable? Like, they, like something about the movie will make someone so uncomfortable that they don't want to watch it anymore. Yes. I'm, I'm, I am a very, uh, on my test, I'm very high in openness and I've never, I never really get like that. I'm always curious about what it is. It's trying, what the film is trying to say. Um, and it's just, that's, to me, that's a really interesting dimension because also too, people, people low in openness can get, can learn more about developing that trait by doing creative things. So it's almost like you want people who aren't used to doing creative things to spend more time doing creative things because, you know, you're exercising your mind in a way that it doesn't, that, that um, is almost antithetical to maybe how you, uh, your genetics are, but it's still so important. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that because I just thought that was super interesting and as sort of a way to understand um, understand why people just don't get art because I think a lot of people don't get art and it's super frustrating for artists sometimes. Yes. Maybe it's just the uh, mother nature. <laughs> I think it I think it all goes back to what we were talking about earlier is like what exactly do people value in art and maybe that has more to do with personality than I think it does because I mean people who go there's a certain kind of people that go to art museums you know mm -hmm. someone who is super into sports and I don't know I'm kind of generalizing here but generalized dude someone that's like really into sports and hasn't really been exposed to art in their life may not have any interest in it because of like their personality. They might've made those choices to not like art in the same sense that like a musician would or a theater kid would, you know, yeah. and like you have to have certain characteristics, I guess, to be genuinely interested in certain things like I don't like sports but I don't know if that's like the openness of it mm -hmm. I don't really know but I think I think you have to be open-minded to enjoy art for sure because art kind of depicts a lot about culture and about the times and art can also be very political and yeah. but also at the same time Art could not be political and it could be very personal and invoke a really deep emotion. And if you're not ready for those emotions, then you're not going to be like if a art piece invokes an emotion in you that you just aren't ready to deal with, then you're not going to like it. You're going to say something negative about it. You're, or if it's too weird for you, like there's this one artist. I can't think of her name right now, but almost all of her pieces are lard and chocolate themed. And she's like licked bust of her made out of chocolate and lard 
to like Freak. completely <laughs> them, and it's super weird like she bathed yeah. with it and like she had this whole message behind it and if you're just like if you're not if you're like open, a carpenter <laughs> like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> if you're just not open to like empathizing with why she would want to do something like that yeah then the, the performance aspect of it too is also the art i think a lot of people don't get that yeah totally and it's like you yeah you just have to be open to yeah. any sort of visual art because normally people who aren't open like i would imagine people that ha are not very open to things based off this personality test that you're talking about um don't listen to very good music or they, they probably they, listen to creed or something like that dude, it, or or they're the type of people that just need music to be a background noise my dad yeah. and i talk about this a lot because he's a musician and he talks a lot about people who um just need people need music to have the background they just turn on the radio whatever's on the radio they just listen to um they don't really think about it it's just background noise like, I can't do that. When, I, when there's a song on, it's usually what I'm focusing on. And yeah. it's very distracting if, if, there's a, if people are talking over. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting. I mean, there's, there's, tons, of, there's tons we don't know about the mind and the way it interfaces with, with art and artistic abilities. We're still discovering things about our brain all the time. I feel like we know more about our own oceans which we also know very little about than we do our own brain yeah we know, know about as much as we know about as much as uh we know more about jeffrey epstein killing himself than we do about our brain and, um, <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what is what is your for people who want to check out your art where can people find it oh man um well currently i'm trying to stay off the social medias as much as I can but fair point I he would yeah I got I got too much going on right now but yeah. soon I will be back in making art as much as I possibly can and there's two places where you can check that out both are on Instagram and you can find either account if you just look up one of these so my main account which is mostly stuff about my life but some good art every once in a while is at certain things but not others and my art account which is mostly just scanned it's actually all just scanned images from my sketchbooks um it's called underscore bumps underscore and that account is interesting because um i am a multimedia artist i do printmaking i do ceramics i do collage work I do sculpture, I've made shadow boxes, I make earrings, I print clothes. It's just my whole being, I just can't stop. But that, uh, that account, my Bumps account, is just scan images from my weather journals. And I am on currently book 12. So I have 12 books, Dude, I, just drawings of every day. Your weather journals blow me away. Your dedication to your weather journals blow me away. They're kind of lacking right now because I, I really haven't had time to, but um, like basically journals like two through 10 
are all filled completely. So I have probably over a thousand because every every book has over a hundred pages in them. So I have over a thousand images of things I could post on that account. So <laughs> all right. Well, so, I'll, link, I'll link both in uh, in the show notes and yeah, hopefully we, expose more people to your art. Well, if not then whatever <laughs> and fuck him. no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> well thank you beth for being my first guest and yeah that was a lot of fun yes it was